even though it seems like I have a crazy career going from screenwriting to journalism to broadcast journalism to Wall Street, I actually think that there's a certain thread that connects them. I don't think most rabbis think of themselves as being Wall Street analysts. It's not as different as you might think. Welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast dedicated to helping you reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and truly enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have decided to step off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and do work that matters. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to discuss how he relaunched his career from being a Wall Street analyst to a rabbi in Jerusalem. We'll discuss why having a life outside of work is so critical to your overall happiness and what it takes to figure out where to focus your career energies. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll explain how I discovered the common thread that unifies the wide range of experiences in my own career. Before we get started today, I just wanted to share one final reminder that on November 21st, I'm going to be speaking in London at the Inspiring Women in Business Conference hosted by Management Today at the Hilton Hotel in Canary Wharf. I'll be speaking about how to become a person of influence, where I'll be sharing a few simple tips on how to raise your professional visibility and how to build your reputation. Other speakers include Ella Dolphin, CEO of the Stylist Group, and Renee Elliott, CEO of Planet Organic. If you're interested in attending the conference, you can learn more and register at iwib.co.uk. Okay, on to today's interview, where I'm speaking with Todd Jacobs, director of the David Robinson Institute for Jewish Heritage in Jerusalem, which he co-founded in 2005. Prior to his current role there, teaching and counseling his students and alumni, he worked on Wall Street as a leading authority on the telecommunications industry. As a former managing director at J.P. Morgan and partner at Samford C. Bernstein & Company, Todd acted as a frequent commentator to leading newspapers magazines, and TV networks, and testified several times before the U.S. Congress as an expert on telecom and media policy. His credits in journalism, where he worked prior to Wall Street, include nominations for both the Pulitzer Prize for investigative journalism and an Emmy Award. He holds an MS in journalism from Columbia University and an MA from Northwestern University. Now, Todd's our very first guest based in the Middle East, so I was really excited to get him on the show to not only talk about his own career pivots, but also to share his own unique insights, having crossed paths with so many individuals at his institute who are navigating career transitions themselves. We're going to talk about a wide range of career topics today and even touch on how to have a successful marriage, which is the topic of his recently published book entitled Not a Partnership, and actually relates to a couple themes we'll get into today about how to manage any part of your life or career that's inherently complex. You can get all the show notes from today's episode at careerrelaunch.net slash 66. Todd spoke with me from Jerusalem, where he currently lives with his family. Good afternoon, Todd, and welcome to Career Relaunch. It is great to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much, Joseph. It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show, Todd, because you're our first guest based in Jerusalem. So I've got a lot of things I'd like to talk with you about. We're going to talk about your time as a journalist, your time on Wall Street, and also what prompted you to move from New York City to Israel, which is where you're based right now. Can you just start by telling me what you've been focused on in your career and your life there in Jerusalem? I guess for the last 15 years, 
I have been pursuing a late stage career, probably the last major career I'm going to have that I have at least in my plans. And that is that I decided to leave Wall Street and come to Jerusalem to open up an institute with a mentor of mine. And it's called the David Robinson Institute for Jewish Heritage. It's in Jerusalem. And I spend virtually all of my time now teaching classic Jewish subjects, philosophy, law, a little bit of, you know, Kabbalistic wisdom, deep spiritual wisdom, and mentoring really a phenomenal group of young men who come from many different places in the world and many different backgrounds. And what unites them is that they're all smart, high-performing people who have finished college, who usually finish graduate school, who are pursuing careers, but then decide they want to take maybe a year off and maybe two years off of what they're doing career-wise to figure out what makes them tick as human beings, get training in relationship building, and then sort of armed with that centered spiritual vision of what they want out of their life, they return to their careers with like a new sense of vigor and idealism. One of my colleagues and I wrote a book, which is based upon a lot of the work that we do in the area of relationships. You know, and the authoring part of my career is really just a, sort of an offshoot of what I've been doing for the last 15 years. Okay, so we're going to come back to your time there as director, but I know you haven't always been the director of the David Robinson Institute for Jewish Heritage, and you've got a really rich career that started off as a journalist. So could you tell us about your career starting off as a journalist? I think you did a stint in screenwriting also, and then we can move forward from there. The career really began with sort of a failed career in screenwriting. When I say failed career, I, you know, there was a group of us I think there were three of us. We were all close friends. We were all writers. One of us was a, not myself, but the, one, of, one of the three was a filmmaker. Um, one was a bit of a poet, and I was kind of more of a journalistic writer by nature. And we decided to write a screenplay, which we really almost never finished and never sold and never was able to do anything with it. And I was waiting tables in New York City at the time to pay the bills and at some point, I just decided, you know, I just can't go on like this. I have to get kind of a real job, or at least what I thought then was a real job. And so I uh, applied to go to the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism so that I could continue doing which sort of one of the things I viewed as the key thing that I love doing, which was writing, but bring it into a professional environment where I could actually have a regular job, get a paycheck, and while doing something that I enjoyed doing and thought I was, you know, relatively good at. So that took me into journalism. And I keep talking about like kind of like the crazy things that happened in journalism, if you'd like. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what you enjoyed about journalism and some of the challenges that you had to tackle during your time as an investigative journalist? So the beauty of being a journalist is just that incredible exposure to a lot of exciting and interesting things that are going on in life and the pressure to become expert in many, many different areas quickly, and to be able to communicate them to a broad audience who is not expert in those areas. By a, a strange series of events, I wound up falling as a student into a very, very big investigative story. I never had in mind that I was going to become an investigative journalist. I was sent to do a story that was about a company called WedTech. WedTech had started out as a little tool and die shop and it had grown to become a company that not only was successful, but had gone public, had made its owners wealthy and famous. And I was sent up to do what we would call a puff piece, uh, just you know, showing what a great little company that is, 
take a few pictures, talk about how wonderful they are. And when I was up there, just something didn't smell right. And in going in down to the SEC to get some filings on the company to find out about how their finances looked, I discovered some interesting data there, which showed that some very, very powerful figures in the New York political world and in the New York business world seem to have been manipulating the company, taking control of it, and then handing it over to this guy to be more or less a puppet master in the company or, or, or a front man, I should say, to the company so that they could bilk the government out of what turned out to be $100 million, $200 million, something like that. The great ending to that story is that for you know one year as an investigative journalist, my partner and I were both nominated for Pulitzer Prizes for investigative journalism because it was such a gigantic story. It was good enough to get those credentials to then get me into broadcast journalism, where I then spent the next couple of years basically making documentaries and, and uh, working in broadcast. So you're a successful journalist. You're nominated for a Pulitzer Award. You work in documentaries. What made you then want to transition into the world of Wall Street? At a certain point, I decided with a friend of mine that we would sort of launch out on our own and have our own production company. We got a little bit of venture capital funding just to kind of pay the basic bills. Um, and we gave away part of the company to somebody you know, in order to do that. And about a year later, we absolutely totally failed as a company. And at that point, I was married. I don't think we were expecting our first child yet, but you know, it was kind of like in the near future, we thought. And I had no money. I was out of a job. And I just literally not knowing what to do, had to start thinking about kind of the next step. I wound up running into uh, another friend of mine who had been working on Wall Street as a bond trader. He was working for Solomon Brothers at the time. So he said to me, well, you know, you seem like a smart guy. He said, you know, what do you view as your core talents? So I said, writing and reporting. That's what I've been doing for the last couple of years is writing and reporting. He said, okay, writing and reporting. He said, okay, how are you with numbers? Are you good with numbers? So I said, I don't know. You know, I haven't really done, I, I took calculus in uh, college, but I haven't really done anything with, with any math or economics. So he said, well, if you think you're even okay at it, he said, I suggest you try and get a job as an analyst. So I said, what's that? And he said, well, there are these people who kind of investigate and report about a given industry and given sets of companies. I had literally no idea what to do, but he told me, you know, go get a Wall Street Journal, collect all the names of the Wall Street firms you can find in the advertisements and write letters to all their directors of research. And the truth was we skipped over one little step in broadcast, which is that, that I had actually gotten nominated for an Emmy Award for a short film that I made for NBC. And the film that I had made, there was a person who raised $1,000 for me to hire the camera crew for that. And he raised it from a guy named Sanford C. Bernstein. And this Mr. Bernstein had given me $1,000 for that project. I had never met him. But in the letter I wrote to him, I said, you know, you once gave me $1,000 and I turned it into an Emmy Award Imagine you know, what I could do if I were working for you or something like that. So he thought that was humorous, and, and it was enough just to get my foot in the door and get an interview. And very, very happily, Sanford Bernstein hired me. They hired me as a total grunt. I'd never used a computer before. I'd only use you know, those old typewriters, the manual typewriters in the, in the newsrooms. But they figured you know, I knew certain things that MBAs didn't know. And so I spent the next uh, two and a half years as a junior analyst before they promoted me to being a senior analyst. As someone who didn't start his career on Wall Street, what was it like for you to work on Wall Street? And I'd be curious to hear about what you liked and 
maybe what you didn't like so much? There were different stages. The initial couple of years were incredibly exhilarating on one hand because the learning curve was amazingly steep. You can just imagine walking in, kind of having a, a little bit of a sense that you're sort of a smart guy and you know how to write and you know how to talk to management and you're, you know, you're not a pushover. But on the other hand, you don't know anything that anybody around you knows. But happily, they sort of gave me enough rope and enough time to get more and more responsibility over a period of about two and a half years. And slowly, slowly, uh, I came up to a point where I actually had some sense of what I was doing. So that was a year of amazing learning curve and amazing stress coming along with it. And so I wound up being a senior analyst with Sanford Bernstein. I was at Sanford Bernstein 11 years altogether uh, and then got hired away by J.P. Morgan, where I went uh, for the last you know, kind of couple of years, I guess the last two and a half, three years of my career. So I know at that time, you'd also had some uh, children along the way. And I think when we spoke before, I think you told me you have four kids. Yes, we had four kids. The fourth of whom was born, by the way, during a meeting that I was having, a conference call that I was having with JP Morgan bankers and a, and a company. I literally, okay. as, my wife, <laughs> as my wife was being wheeled into the OR to oh, have this I was on the phone with these guys saying, like, you must let me off the phone. I got to go. I have to be part of this birth here. So that, that one, I'll never forget. That one was part of J.P. Morgan. On this show, we talk about transitions and, and what compels people to make major changes. In your case, I know you eventually made a major decision to not only move countries, but also move away from the world of Wall Street and also change your role. What made you want to make such a major change and eventually move to Jerusalem? Throughout my career, I always tried to make sure that I had things going on in my personal and private life, which I felt were intrinsically meaningful. As much as I loved the time on Wall Street, which was an incredible time, incredible experience, I never felt that trying to make money was the highest calling of a human being. But I did feel that it could give a person the tools and the stature and the assets to really make a difference in the world if you could extract yourself from doing that full time. And so I wound up working for a couple of years at JP Morgan. And I just felt that there's, you know, there's going to be this time before I become too old, before my kids become too old, where if I'm not going to make a big move to go try something very idealistic and not money oriented, that I will I'll never be able to do it again. I had been sort of quietly on the side speaking to a mentor of mine for many, many years about the possibility of starting with him an institution in Jerusalem. But it was, it was sort of years in the making while on Wall Street, but never really knowing if it was going to come to fruition. And at a certain point, I just decided we have to fish or cut bait at this point. So I quit my job and we moved to Jerusalem. I went back to full-time study, like to become a rabbi, basically. And then we opened up that institution in 2005. And I have you know, been doing that for close to 15 years now. Okay. And what was it like for you to go from Wall Street analyst to rabbi? Had I not had the Wall Street experience, I do not believe I would have had the confidence or the wherewithal, really in any way, from a, from a know-how standpoint, from an asset standpoint, to be able to do such a venture. So in, in many ways, I viewed it as a, a next step a progression, which as I look back, even though it seems like I have a crazy career going from screenwriting to journalism, to broadcast journalism, to Wall Street, I actually think that there's a certain thread even into what I'm doing now. I don't think most rabbis think of themselves as being Wall Street analysts, but in a way that there are so many similarities in terms of the boiling down and communication of complex concepts and the hope that the person's able to then integrate it and take it on to the next level themselves. 
it's not as different as you might think. But it's obviously got a whole spiritual component to it, which makes it, in, you know, for me at least, much more personally gratifying and meaningful. Yeah, it's really interesting, Todd, because I think one of the things that people sometimes struggle with is how to talk about their careers if they have a wide array of interests or they've made some pretty major career pivots. And as you mentioned, you've had a wide range of professional experiences. How did you go about figuring out what the common thread was across your experiences and how to clearly and concisely communicate that to other people? I do think that most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, can spend a little time trying to think about, first of all, what do I love to do? And try and list the things that you love to do, irrespective of whether they are professionally oriented or not. And then try and figure out what are you better at than other people? Not just good at, but where do you have an actual competitive edge? And that may have nothing to do with what you love. But if you have a list of things you're good at, and you have a list of things you love, and you can compare those lists and put them together, and you can try and circle something at the top of both of those lists where not only am I good at it, but I also love it, that is pretty much going to define what you should be pursuing for your whole career. In a way, I always knew at heart that what I was better at than other people was writing and communicating, taking ideas that were complex, and then figuring out different ways to communicate them to other people. Maybe one of the big lessons of this whole story is all I really knew was what my competency was. And I sort of trusted that over time, I would keep falling into the right things and those opportunities would happen. Almost none of those opportunities could have been predicted before they happened. And certainly, they could not have been generated by me. I think a lot of life is just figuring out what can you do, what can you do well, and try and stick with it, and then be flexible enough and opportunistic enough to try to find places to make it real. And I think if a person can do that, you can have a career that will be extremely unpredictable in many cases, but often quite meaningful and often quite successful if you just keep sticking to what your core competency is. All right. Well, that's a great segue, Todd, into one of the last things I want to talk with you about before we wrap up with your book. And that's some of the lessons that you've learned about yourself and your own career, having navigated and made changes in your career multiple times. And the first question I had actually relates to some of your observations there at the David Robinson Institute, having crossed paths with so many individuals who are taking breaks from their careers. What do you think is a common mistake that people make when it comes to thinking about where to take their careers? One of the biggest mistakes people make is they rush headlong into their careers before they really figure out who they are as human beings. What makes them tick? How do they want to work? Do they have the wherewithal to like, you know, go into a really competitive, hyper aggressive type of a, you know, a business like, I don't know, like Wall Street or certain parts of tech or certain parts of consulting or certain parts of law? Or to the contrary, you know, they may have been guided that way by their parents or by their their schools, but maybe they want to be a social worker. Maybe what really turns them on is, you know, helping other people. And therefore, they could be a great therapist or they could be a, a great nurse. People sell themselves short and they do what society or their parents or their community pushes them into without actually trying to figure out if it actually fits them and if it has anything to do with what their real ideals are. And by the way, and if it's really the place where they can shine the most relative to others, which again, I keep coming back to, competitive advantage is a very important thing to have in your career whether you're going to be a psychologist or a nurse or whether you're going to try and go to Wall Street or go to consulting. 
So to me, one of the important things is take some time and figure out who you are. The extent to which you can develop things in your life which are meaningful to you, which are not directly related to your job, whether it's community work, whether it's volunteering, whether it is deep involvement in your family or community, the more you have in your life which gives you meaning outside of work, the greater longevity you'll have in your job, the less stress you'll have in your job. There's almost no business now where there are not ups and downs, where there's not a lot of competition, um, where there's not a fear factor and an anxiety factor. And the more you're the person that can stand behind that job, who has your own substance, your own life, some meaning that you're pursuing, and a bit of psychological distance from your job, the extent to which you have all of those things is, I believe, the extent to which you'll be much more successful in the job, ironically, than the people who have nothing else, nothing else but their job. And I've seen that over and over and over and over again. So my advice really strongly to people is you've got to figure out what's meaningful in your life and make sure that you are developing that at the same time you're developing your career. And you're also someone, Todd, who has successfully made a few career pivots. What's something that you wished you had known about making such major changes, in your case, multiple times that you now know? The extent to which you cannot force these changes to occur and these opportunities to occur, if a person understood that at an early stage, I think there would be a bit less stress and anxiety associated with their career in general. The idea that we don't control the world like we, like we would like to, the earlier you can get an understanding of that, in a sense, the more flexible and malleable you'll become with respect to your career the more relaxed and healthy you'll be, which again, always brings you back to being a better employee with much more longevity in your job. What have you learned about yourself along the way of your twisting career journey? There are a lot of people that based upon unhealthy relationships in their careers make life extremely rocky for the people around them. I learned early on to try not to do that and then to trust in yourself and work really, really hard and Try and develop things outside of your life to make life you know, richer and, and more livable. Well, speaking about relationships, Todd, I want to wrap up by talking about your book, which is titled Not a Partnership, Why We Keep Getting Marriage Wrong and How We Can Get It Right, which you co-authored with Peter Lin and released in April 2019. Let's talk about the title first. What did you mean when you said not a partnership? The way many people approach their marriage is pretty much like people approach partnerships in the business world. If you look at the statistics on partnerships, you know what you find? Most of them fail. The way we tend to look at ourselves is I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing and you're not pulling your weight. And that leads to bitter recriminations. It leads to lots of infighting. It leads to lots of failed partnerships, frankly, in the business place. And when you port that perspective into your marriage, it is corrosive. It is destructive. And people spend much of their marital energy resenting their spouse because, after all, I'm doing my part and you're never doing your part. And that's just the absolute worst mindset to go into marriage with. Now, this isn't a show about marriage, but I cannot let you go, Todd, without asking you at least a few questions to get your tips on marriage and get your perspectives on things. So I've been married now for about seven years, and I'm always interested in this topic. And one of the things that you say early on in your book is that the job of each spouse is to help the other in every way. And I'd be curious 
how you think about that topic, especially as it relates to the context of someone's career, if they're not feeling so great about their job or their career. If I'm going to have a successful marriage, any successful relationship, by the way, I really need to be thinking about what are your needs and how can I help you fulfill them? How can I help you accomplish your goals? We need a a total mindset change that says rather than marriage being someplace where I'm entitled to get from the other, it's a place which creates a, a whole vehicle in which I can now become a giver. Now, people become bigger and better people as they give. Research shows that they are happier the more they give. When a person begins giving to the other, the other always responds by giving back. The actual fruit of giving tends to be that you awaken giving in the other person. When it comes to our career, there's a sense of excellence, a sense that we are held accountable, and a sense that we got to work really hard to be experts in any arena that we're going to be in in our careers. Marriage is no less complex than any career that any of us faces. By the way, what's the great proof for that? How many people do we know who are very successful in their careers and extremely unsuccessful in their personal relationships? Because guess what? A personal relationship also requires learning, studying, finding out what a healthy relationship looks like, some version of a review process where I at least find out how am I doing as a spouse. When I begin to take some of those lessons that are true and obvious and self-evident in the business world and every other arena that I operate in, and I begin porting that sense of responsibility, professionalism, desire to keep learning, desire to keep working, and a willingness to look at honestly how I'm doing, again, I become a better spouse. I give more, the marriage becomes more something that blossoms more, and I get a lot more meaning and pleasure and happiness. The other thing you mentioned in your book, and I think this is also applicable to our careers, was that as problems arise in our marriages, we seek solutions, but we often get stuck at the surface level. And I think you give the example of how great and mediocre doctors differ in their approaches to treating illnesses. What did you mean by this? And how do you think this applies to marriages? Let's take the classic example. I go to a doctor and I say, I've got an infected throat. You don't have to be any better than a mediocre doctor to look at my throat and say, oh, throat infection. Okay, I'll give you some antibiotics for that. That's the mediocre doctor who basically reads symptoms and treats symptoms. When I begin looking at underlying causation, I can begin treating much deeper levels of your health which will then reflect themselves eventually in getting fewer sinus infections and fewer throat infections. And when it comes to marriage, you know, it's like the husband who, you know, who leaves his socks around the room rather than putting them in the, in the hamper. Mm-hmm. So the real problem is his wife wants him to stop doing the sock on the floor thing. But really what, what the much deeper issue is, obviously, he just not, he's not very thoughtful. And he doesn't really value his wife's time as much as he values his time. I don't have the extra two seconds to grab my socks and go put them in the hamper. Oh, but she obviously does. That's a fundamental character issue that has to be worked on. How do I think about another person? How do I make space for another person? How do I elevate the needs of another person to at least where they are as important as my own? And so that is a lot of the real work that has to get done within the context of marriage. And again, once again, in, in other arenas, we do these things naturally because we know that there will be consequences if we don't. You also mentioned in your book that it's really important, and I think this was one of the pillars that you mentioned of having a successful marriage, is to keep things fresh. And you go on to say in that chapter that you have to prioritize your spouse. I have found that 
especially in the context of having children, and we, we've got an 18-month-old at home, or anything else that takes up space in your life, this can become tough. Do you have any simple tips on how to keep things fresh? I'll give you one practical piece of advice, which is hard to do. And I've actually had students, husbands and wives, and I've sometimes asked them to like literally sign a contract. I even put an example of a contract in the book, sign a contract with each other that says, we are going to make sure that every Tuesday night, we are going to work as hard as we can to make sure we have a date night, that we get out of the house and we don't talk about the kids and we don't talk about work. We talk about each other. It shouldn't be about solving practical issues. It should be about constantly remembering why we got married, why we fell in love, why we prize each other so much, and why we like spending time together. And when people do that, you know, people are worried, oh my gosh, what, you know, my kid is going to be traumatized because, you know, you know, she's going to wake up in the middle of the night, and there's going to be, you know, a, you know, a stranger there babysitting. The happiness engendered by the two of you being in love, happy with each other, communicating well, having great intimacy and an overflowing relationship, that will have much greater positive impact on the kid over an entire childhood than any you know, little trauma and crying fit will have when you walk out and leave them with the babysitter or they wake up with the babysitter. So it has huge impact on the home, but it won't happen unless you prioritize it. I'm going to keep that in mind, Todd, and I'm going to share some of this with my own wife, and I'm also going to keep it in mind for myself. So some really great tips there. And if people want to learn more about your perspectives on marriage and get some great tips on how to have a successful marriage and to check out your book, Not a Partnership, where can they go? Amazon.com. The book is called Not a Partnership, and they'll find us there. Cool. Well, I definitely recommend people check it out. And just wanted to thank you so much, Todd, for taking your time out of your busy day to tell us more about your life as a rabbi and how you made your career pivots, the importance of figuring out who you are, and also sharing a few useful tips about marriage right there at the end. So thanks so much. And uh, best of luck with the book and all that you're doing for your community there in Jerusalem. Thank you so much. I appreciate it very much. So I hope you heard some useful perspectives from Todd about focusing on investing your energies in things you find meaningful, the importance of giving, and even how to have a better marriage. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to dig deeper into what Todd mentioned earlier about finding the common thread that unifies all your career experiences. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I'd like to thank Audible for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Audible is the premier provider of digital audiobooks offering over 180,000 audiobook titles for listening anytime and anywhere on your favorite device. And for listeners of this show, they're offering a free audiobook download and 30-day trial. Just go to audibletrial.com slash career relaunch to download your free audiobook today. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. For today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to go back to what Todd was saying about how all his diverse career experiences actually had something in common, which in his case was about boiling down complex topics in a way that allowed others to understand and act on them. And this got me thinking about a very common challenge and question I get asked about all the time in my personal branding workshops, especially when we're talking about how to pitch your career story to a future employer or client. And the question I often get asked, mostly by people with nonlinear career backgrounds, is how do you take a series of past career experiences that seem at least on the surface to be unrelated to your next target role and explain them in a way that makes sense not only to others, 
but also to yourself. And this is something I've had to wrestle with myself during many of my own career pivots, including going from medicine to business, consulting to brand marketing, and especially when I left the corporate world to start my own business. For example, I really struggled to connect the dots for people between being a healthcare policy consultant and eventually marketing household cleaning products or between marketing drain opener and marketing luxury desserts, or between marketing products and coaching people during times of career transition. But similar to what Todd said about how being a Wall Street analyst actually has a lot in common with being a rabbi, even though that may not seem to be the case from the outside looking in, I've actually found that if I force myself to look deeply enough there are often unifying elements between my seemingly unrelated professional experiences. There are actually two exercises I've found especially useful in helping to connect the dots between what you've done before and what you're doing now or want to do in the future that I wanted to share with you. The first is about zooming in and trying to bridge the gap between individual roles. This involves taking an inventory of all your key skills and experiences from your most recent role or roles, and selectively focusing on highlighting only those skills or experiences you feel are directly relevant to your future role. Getting clear on this is especially important when you're trying to explain your key skills to others when networking or when trying to convince a hiring manager that your most recent experiences are relevant and valuable to your target role. So, for example, when I was trying to make the shift from consulting to marketing during my marketing interviews, I tried to hone in on the client management skills and analytical skills that I felt mapped well to marketing agency management skills and brand analytical skills. The second exercise is about zooming out and trying to capture the big picture theme of your career. This is like the unifying cause or skill set that ties all your experiences together. We used to do a similar exercise when I was a brand marketer, trying to come up with a collective brand mission that unified a lot of different products that sat underneath one single brand. When it came to thinking about my own career, what I realized when I took a bird's eye view of my range of experiences since about 2003, pretty much all my experiences related in some way to relaunching brands and products. And now I take those same principles and apply them to people when they're relaunching their careers. And getting clear on this unifying story has been really helpful to me whenever I'm explaining my professional history to others, pitching my credentials to a potential client or just trying to establish credibility with an audience because it helps others make sense of what I'm about, especially because I don't exactly have a linear career. Although it may feel like a tedious task, I found that taking the upfront time to get clear on your career story and then to rehearse your career story again and again is not only a helpful but necessary step you have to take in order to gain the confidence you need to explain your story in a convincing, persuasive way to others. Because if you're not clear on how the dots connect in your own career, imagine how hard it's going to be to explain that to someone else. Taking the time to go through these two exercises of really clarifying your relevant skills and the big picture theme of your career trajectory 
is critical before you can pull off any sort of major career pivot. It definitely takes some effort, but if you do it, I really think you'll make better career choices that align with those themes and be more convincing to people who could ultimately influence which doors open up for you. This brings me to a quote from Abraham Lincoln. Give me six hours to chop the tree, and I'll spend the first four hours sharpening the axe. So my challenge to you, especially if you find yourself struggling to pitch your career story to a new target employer or client, is to, number one, dedicate some time to capture a written inventory of your skills and experiences. Then number two, selectively hone in on those you feel are the most relevant to your future work. And finally, number three, trying to highlight and reinforce those specific skills and experiences as part of your career narrative moving forward. Better yet, try to identify a common theme that ties all your experiences together, which can serve as a convenient unifying headline you can use when describing your career story to others. Before we go today, I wanted to share this voicemail from a listener named Lean in Edmonton, Canada, sharing her thoughts about episode 64 of Career Relaunch, featuring retail merchandiser turned baby sleep consultant Tamiko Kelly. Hi, Joseph. That Tamiko interview was just mind-blowing and phenomenal. I think that's just one of the most profound things I've heard career-wise and just so honest. And I always recommend your podcast because it really speaks to the perspective of values and priorities and, you know, that conversation with yourself to make changes and such a mature perspective beyond just find your passion. So thanks. Keep up the great shows. Well, Lean, thank you so much for your kind comments about the show and about Tamiko. I'm very happy to hear you're finding the perspectives here to be helpful and practical, and I hope you'll continue to find these conversations valuable to your career. If you're enjoying the show and you want to share your thoughts with me, I'd welcome you leaving me a voicemail at careerrelaunch.net slash 66, where you can also find a summary of all the key concepts from today's conversation with Todd. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 66. You can also just email me at joseph at careerrelaunch.net with your question or any thoughts you want to share with me about the show. In our next episode of Career Relaunch, we're heading from Jerusalem all the way over to Texas, where I'm going to speak with someone who spent 20 years as a legal secretary and eventually went on to start her own yoga studio. We're going to talk about how discomfort and disruption can actually shed light on where to take your career and why you should pay attention to the emotional benefits your job offers you. Thanks so much for listening to Career Relaunch and a very special thanks to Todd Jacobs for sharing his unique career story with us today from Jerusalem. This episode was mixed by Richard Pennington, Electrocardiogram wrote and performed our original theme song. I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll see you next time.